I started into Hebrews 12 last week and made it down through verse 13. Uh, there's a great deal here in writing to the Jews who had or were becoming converted in that day. And this letter was written specifically to them as well as to us who would become spiritual Jews here at the end. There is a story here that I probably will go back to tomorrow in the first part of this chapter uh, and pick up. I want to move forward from verse 13 at the moment, but there's something that ties together here between Israel and what we are about to get into with Esau. And it is imperative that we understand history in order to truly grasp what well, we need to understand now in terms of the New Testament church, what is happening both on the world scene as well as what is happening in the church. So I'll move on for the moment and probably come back to some of this tomorrow, even though we've covered it in detail in chapter 12. Uh, and I don't want to do that again. I want to refer back to it and use it as a starting point to discuss something different. Now, picking it up in verse 14 of Hebrews 12, uh, well, he's talking about chastening. Let's pick verse 13 first. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. So he's using the human body here, showing that if a foot is made lame or doesn't work right, uh, you favor that foot, and it could lead you in circles. It could lead you out of the path, out off the trail. So when God chastens us, we're supposed to get over being lame and walk straight so that we not be turned out of the way, but so that whatever needed to be changed in us is fixed so that it's healed. It's no longer a problem. Now God does not chasten us unless we do have a problem of some kind, and his expectation is that we make it straight. Now to verse 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the eternal. So we must follow peace and we must follow holiness. Two very, very important things to consider right here, else we will not see God. Now when we understand some history here, we'll get a better grasp of what he's talking about. But let's go on to verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail or lose or fall from the grace of God. We already know that in this end-time age, the church, the true church, has fallen from the grace of God. And we are being scattered and punished. So he said, be careful that you don't fall from that. Well, if you have fallen, then what should you do? And the church has fallen from that grace, from that good favor of God. We got so bad, he turned his face from us, not toward us. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and therefore many be defiled. Anyone who is bitter for any reason who is turned off, tuned out, frustrated, 
is communicable. They're carrying a very contagious disease. Any kind of hatred, any kind of bitterness, or attitude of that nature is something we must guard against very, very carefully because it can destroy us. And if we hang around people who have bitter, frustrated attitudes of hatred, it can destroy us. So he is giving a very, very severe warning here to the church who are the spiritual Jews of today. And then he makes a comparison. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, a sinner, in other words, of whatever stripe, whether it be fornicator, liar, cheat, thief, murderer, whatever it might be, but he's mentioning the laws of God. Or profane person, as Esau. Now, what was so profane about Esau? A, he did not cherish and value deeply what he did have, and sold it very cheaply. Who for one morsel of meat or food sold his birthright. He did not value it. He did not guard very, very carefully that which at the moment seemed unimportant. Have we had moments where we wavered or fell away or did not maintain the right attitudes. Herbert Armstrong used to say that bitterness is the hardest thing to overcome. If you get bitter enough, it is almost impossible to get past it. If you have sweet water and you pour something bitter in it, how hard is it then to turn it back to sweet. You can dilute it and dilute it and dilute it with fresh water again. But to get the last vestiges of that bitterness out is almost impossible because it's tainted so badly. Our attitude toward God toward his love and his mercy is something that people can and do turn away from. Where they lose faith, we just had a whole chapter about people who walked by faith, through faith, not even knowing where they were going, or what pitfalls or rocks or logs or stumbling blocks of any kind might be in their way, but they went anyway not knowing where they were going because they believed God. Now we, through frustrations in life, our own weaknesses, the way we've been treated by life, sometimes can get so jaded, so bitter, so frustrated, that it's hard to think positively anymore. So we're being warned very severely about this, and we're going to see some lessons in history First, with Esau today, because that's what is brought up here in Hebrews 12 for us. And then I think we will see some attitudes in the history of Israel tomorrow, uh, tied with the church, which should be very enlightening to us.
perhaps see some things that we've not quite looked at in the same way before. Verse 17, For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, or no way to change his mind, my margin says. He couldn't get his mind and his emotions to change. We probably have probably all have had some very strong and deep emotions at one time or another that we realized needed to change and yet had a great deal of difficulty in so doing, haven't we? Whether it be an attitude that we shouldn't have or something we coveted or lusted after or whatever it might be. Let's say you just got really greedy, wanted to make money, and were willing to use any kind of methods to do it. Is that an easy attitude to change? Once you fall into greed, it's very hard to get out of it. That's why money is a root of all evil. It's one of the things that we most wish to have so that we can have the things we want, and it's hard to keep our perspectives right. This is an example. Here it was land. Here it was inheritance that... He took lightly. Well, he didn't continue to take it lightly, did he? He, want, he had something that was his to be by right of birth. And then, in a moment of uncaring, where he didn't value it the way he should have, he sold it very cheaply. The book of Jasher says that he killed Nimrod that day out hunting, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but when he came home, he was tired from hunting. He was very hungry and exhausted, and that he expected to be killed that day by the men of Nimrod. So not only was he hungry from hunting, but perhaps thought he was probably going to die that day anyway, so ah, give me some soup, I'm hungry, who cares? I don't know whether that's true or not, or whether we can believe entirely in the book of Jasher, but it's in there. Interesting sidelight to the story. That isn't really the point. The point is that he sold it, didn't value it in the way that he should, got rid of it cheaply. Let's go pick that story up. There's something here in history that we covered in the Minor Prophets series when we went through the book of Obadiah and various other scriptures with it. But I think it's good, since we're going through Hebrews, and such a strong point here is made about Esau and the church, that would be good to go back and review this story somewhat and fill it in, because it's not just a story in ancient history in the book of Genesis. It is a story which, whether you realize it or not, affects you very deeply every day you live on this earth. The story of Jacob and Esau. Sounds like ancient history, doesn't it? But there are people today who are descendants of Jacob, and we are among them. And there are people who are descendants of Esau, and they are among us, both in the church and in the nation and in the world. And they are having a very powerful 
influence on what is going on in the world today. So this story is not ancient history. It's for you and me. And it has great and deep meaning. And it will have very possibly life and death meaning for us. Whether we live or whether we die, both physically and spiritually. So if that doesn't get our attention, I don't know what would. <laughs> let's go back to this ancient history and let's update it to today and see what has transpired and what is about to transpire that will affect our lives very, very directly. Starting in Genesis 25, and here I want to pick it up in about verse 25. This is the story of Isaac and Rebekah and the children that she had conceived in verse 21. Uh, and God told her in verse 23, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, not just two children, but two nations. And two manner of people shall be separated from your bowels. Two different type individuals. They wouldn't have much in common. They'd be very, very different. Two different types of peoples. Two different types of nations, if you will shall be separated from your bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. The elder should have had the birthright, the inheritance, double portion, but that was not to be. God said it wasn't to be. Now, like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah had some problems with God working out what God intended to work out. And at some point... Rebecca and Jacob decided to take it into their own hands to make this prophecy be fulfilled. And they used wrong methods. Anyway, verse 24, her days to be delivered were fulfilled, and behold, there were twins in her womb. Well, then what God said? Wow, behold, look. The first came out red, all over, like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau, because he was red and because he was hairy. Maybe they should have called him Esau Harry or something like that. Whatever. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. So Esau was born first, and as soon as Jacob came out, he grabbed hold of Esau's heel with his hand. There are petroglyphs right here in this area that depict that, that show one figure grabbing the foot, the heel, of another. It's a very interesting story in the rocks but I think that it does depict this right here. So he took Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was threescore years old, 60, when she bore them. Then it goes on to talk about how Esau was a good hunter and a man of the field. He was an outdoors type, and Jacob was uh, more of an indoorsy type, living in tents. He was the type that would have liked cities, I suppose, by nature whereas Esau liked the mountains and the hills and the trees and the outdoors. Now, that doesn't in itself make you bad. <laughs> a lot of people are outdoors people. I'm one of them. But uh, Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. He, he liked Esau as a person better because of the type of person he was. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob hung around the tents, I suppose, around his mother's skirts, 
and wasn't quite as manly in that sense as Esau was. Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint, and Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray you, with that same red soup, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom, or Red. And Jacob said, Sell me this day your birthright. Well, I'll give you some soup, but I want your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm at the point to die. What difference does it make? And what profit shall this birthright do to me? When you're really, really hungry, your sense of values and perspective kind of go away. Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink, and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now there were two wrongs. Jacob bought something at way below market value when he caught his brother in a weak moment. That's virtually the same as stealing, isn't it? And then a little later on, not only did they want the birthright, but they also wanted all the blessings. So then Rebekah and, and Jacob conspired to send Esau out hunting and bring some venison to Isaac. And you remember the story, I won't go through it all, Esau being hairy and they put sheepskin on, his, on Jacob's arms and... Uh, made out like he was Esau and went in to ask for Isaac's blessing. So Isaac gave the blessing to the wrong guy. Now he was deceived. So they took into their hands to get all blessings from Esau and give them to Jacob. Now Jacob, I mean Esau then became very angry he hated his brother. Uh, when he heard the story, let's see, Genesis 27, verse 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, that the blessing had been given away to Jacob by mistake, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry. So a bitterness came into his being immediately. He realized he'd already made a mistake in giving up his birthright. Then he realized he had made an even more serious mistake not so much his mistake in that sense, but he also lost the blessing that Jacob and Rebekah took from him. And he said, Your brother came with subtlety and has taken away your blessing. And he said, Is not he rightly named Jacob, that is, a supplanter, or a heel grabber, someone who grabs hold of someone and takes something away from them? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him your lord, and all his brethren have I given to him for servants. And with corn and wine have I sustained him. So he had the land, birthright. Then he had all the blessings that come as well. Esau, what shall I do to you, my son? You know, what do I have left to give? I've given it all away. Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. So he just broke down in tears right then. 
what is left for me. That would be kind of hard to take, wouldn't it? Your brother and your mother had lied and stolen from you. Your brother had taken your birthright. You might say here he was dealt a bad hand. Now, he didn't blame himself for the mistake he made in selling the birthright, did he? Who did he blame? He blamed his brother. Now, there was wrong on both sides. One, for trying to get something so cheaply, and the other, for not valuing it highly. Now, in this case, each should take responsibility for his own wrong. But Esau was not about to admit his own responsibility and culpability in the matter, but we'll see he blamed his brother entirely. Blamed his mother, blamed his father to some degree, I'm sure, and certainly blamed his brother. All right, let's go on down, verse 39. Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. Now, he would be, in that sense, landless. God had promised to Jacob the land. Remember the story of Jacob's ladder going up to heaven where he slept and set up a pillar and where he had slept with his head on the stone. And God had told him, I will give you the land north, south, east, and west of you for your own. Where is Jacob today? Jacob is not in the Middle East. We may come to see that the land given to Jacob and the land where Jacob rested his head that night was not in the Middle East. Because if you look at what happened and you look at where Jacob is today, then they must have, by promise, the land that God promised to Jacob. Duh. The United States and Canada, Britain, Northwest Europe, is where Jacob is today, Israel. God blessed us with the greatest, most wonderful lands on earth. We may be able to prove that the land where Jacob was when that promise was made and the land of the north, south, east, and west was the land we live in today. wouldn't surprise me at all if that were the case. We shall see. But he did not promise Edom or Esau that kind of promise at all because that right went to Jacob. God intended that by promising it to Jacob. But God was going to work it out his way, not the way that Rebekah and Jacob worked it out. Now let's see what he says here to Jacob, I mean to Esau then. He fumbled around to try to find something to say. <laughs> you know, what, what can I give you? I've given it all away. Behold, your dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth. So he said he would be in the money, the wealth 
of the earth, a lot of it would go to Esau. Now, he would not have the blessing of land and the productivity of the land, but he would dwell among the wealthy, if you will. Now, Jacob was given the wealth. Edom then, by extrapolation here, must have a hold somewhere in that wealth. Okay? And of the dew of heaven from above. So, some people will seem to be blessed, whether they are righteous or not. And David even bemoaned that the wicked prospered. And by your sword shall you live. So, the descendants of Esau would be a warring bunch of people who like to kill, who like to go to war. They live by the sword. Now, that's a two-edged sword, isn't it? Because there's scripture that tells us, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. So, is that really a blessing? <laughs> he would have to live by the sword. Now, what that's telling me is that there would be a lot of people who did not like the descendants of Esau, and therefore would be against them, who would try to kill them and murder them, and they would be forced to live by the sword in order to survive. And you shall serve your brother. So Esau would live among the wealthy. Esau would have to fight, but he would also be in a subservient position to Jacob. I'm sure that made him very, very happy. I mean, you know, the blessings were gone. And here he's trying to say something nice to Esau, and look what he comes up with. I'll bet this was consoling. You know, you're going to have to fight for your life, and you're going to serve Jacob. Oh, that's a blessing. Okay. But notice, And it shall come to pass, when you shall have the dominion. Esau, at some point, will have dominion over Jacob. Now that should be scary to Jacob. That you shall break his yoke from off your neck. You'll serve Jacob through history, but at some point you will receive the dominion, you'll have the strength, the power, and you'll be able to throw the yoke of Jacob off your neck. Now that, for a man who was bitter and vengeful, was probably the only good news here, or the really good news to him, because that fed his ego, his vanity, and his bitterness. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him, and Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand, then will I slay my brother Jacob. So he said, As soon as Isaac dies, I'm going to kill the boy. That's the way I'll settle this. Now, he wasn't really listening closely to what Isaac told him, was he? Because you're going to serve him. And someday, his dominion will be removed, and then you'll break the yoke. Jacob, I mean, Esau was not willing to accept that. Instead, he said, okay, that's the way it's going to be. 
soon as you die, off comes Jacob's head. Now that attitude has been within the descendants of Esau ever since. Now, they're still seeking to knock the dominion, the dominion off. Now, Esau went so far uh, as to marry outside of the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob just for spite against his father and mother. So he not only hated Jacob, but he despised his father and mother as well. Blamed it all on them. Because Isaac entreated Jacob in chapter 28 to marry within the family. And Esau saw that and said, well, my parents want me to marry within Israel, although he was to become Israel later, but I mean, within the family, okay? So Jacob, I mean, Esau saw that. Verse 8 of 28, Esau seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau to Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife. So just for spite against his parents, he married an Ishmaelite woman. So here you have a connection between Esau, who was of the family of Abraham, Isaac, intermarrying with the Arabs. So you have both Esau, who was rebellious against God and against God's people, marrying into the Arab family, which God said would also become great nations, but would be a wild ass of a man. So we see the Arabs today, who are basically that, and we will see very shortly Edomites among Jacob, who are also still vengeful, and are wishing to kill and destroy Jacob. And will have, in shaking off that dominion and that yoke, a very great impact on Jacob here at the end time, on our people, this nation, and the other nations of Israel around us. There will be an end time impact. All right, in 36.8, I won't turn there, but it says, Esau is Edom says that several times in Scripture so that we don't make a mistake. When we read about Edom and prophecies against Edom in the Bible, they're talking about the descendants of Esau. Now, let's go to Jeremiah 49. Jeremiah 49, 50, 51, right through that section, is speaking uh, about this modern Babylon that we live in. And it is the United States. We have come to be just like Babylon, the embodiment of Babylon, and an end-time fulfillment, we represent Babylon. So right in that context of Jeremiah 50, 51, just before that, we find information about Edom. Jeremiah 49, let's pick it up down, verse 7. Concerning Edom... This is an end-time prophecy for today. Thus says the eternal of hosts, Is wisdom no more in Teman, or they were part of the Ottoman Empire, uh, which was around about 150 years ago, which covered most of the Middle East and Iraq and through Turkey and that area, and was put down, and the British and the French took over the Middle East basically at that time. Is there no more wisdom 
in Ottomans or in Edom. Is counsel perished from the prudent? Is their wisdom vanished? What's wrong with these people? They're doing things they shouldn't be doing. They're doing things that are going to cause their destruction. Flee you, turn back. Dwell deep, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him the time that I will visit him. So God says those descendants in the end time of Esau are going to have calamity come upon them. If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves by night, they will destroy till they have enough. You know, a robber generally will only take what he can carry away. He won't destroy at all. But a vengeful, hateful attitude along with it will. You know, some animals only kill what they need to eat. But sometimes the fox or the dog in the hen house kills everything it can kill. There's an attitude there, whether he eats it or not. <clears throat> but I have made Esau bear. I have uncovered his secret places, and he shall not be able to hide himself. So what this is telling us is that Esau went underground, went undercover. That somehow the sight of them was lost. Where did they go? Where are the descendants of Esau today? So wherever they went, their secret is going to be made bare. His seed is spoiled, and his brethren, and his neighbors, and he is not. You look around for Esau, and where is he? You can find the Chinese. You can find the Israelites if you look at history enough. Where are you going to find Esau? Where is he? Where is he hidden? Leave your fatherless children. I will preserve them alive and let your widows trust in me. Repent. Trust in God. Look to your father. But he already had an attitude about father. So whether it's father God or father Isaac, he had an attitude. Bitterness. Verse 12, For thus says the Eternal, Behold, those whose judgment was not to drink of the cup have assuredly drunken. And are you he that shall altogether go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you shall surely drink of it. So he imbibed or drank an attitude that he should not have had. For I have sworn by myself, says the Eternal, that Basra shall become a desolation. They lived, Esau's descendants, southeast of uh, what we call Jerusalem today, and it became a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse. All the cities thereof shall be perpetual wastes. So if you tour that Middle East area where some of the sons of Esau apparently lived, and maybe there are places like that here we may find out as well, that they're now desolate. I've toured the area, and it is dry, desolate area. Hardly anything grows. I have heard a rumor from the Eternal, and an ambassador is sent unto me and to the heathen, saying, Gather you together and come against her and rise up to the battle. So enemies would gather against Esau. For lo, I will make you small among the heathen, and despised among men. 
We need to look today, if we're going to find Esau, a group of people who are despised of men, who have many enemies. Now, you've heard the sermons on Obadiah and other comments I've made, so you're probably already ahead of the story. There is a group of people who call themselves Jews, who are not Jews, who are despised of men. And they have been, there are many, many different peoples who have tried to wipe them out through the centuries. Your terribleness has deceived you, and the pride of your heart, O you that dwell in the clefts of the rock, that hold the height of the hill, that you should make your nest as high as the eagle. I will bring you down from there, says the Eternal. <laughs> so they have tried to go to the very highest places, or most prominent places, in the governments and the cultures of the world, and to a great degree have succeeded. They wanted to be on the very tops of the mountains like the eagles, which perceive that they are above what is in the valley below. So among men, Esau would rise up there. Not only would they aspire to do so, but they would accomplish it. But God says, I will bring you down. Also Edom shall be a desolation. Everyone that goes by it shall be astonished, and shall hiss at all the plagues thereof. So whoever these people are that constitute Edom today, even though they've risen very high among the mountains, and that means governments in biblical language, they're going to be brought down, and they're going to be desolation. Everyone that goes by it shall be astonished and shall hiss at all the plagues thereof. Wherever these people are, they're going to be destroyed. As in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, so it's going to be a pretty complete destruction, eh? And the neighbor cities thereof, says the eternal, no man shall abide there, neither shall a son of man dwell in it. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the swelling of Jordan against the habitation of the strong. So Edom is going to take on the powers that be in the earth at the end. But I will suddenly make him run away from her, and who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her, or who is like me, and who will appoint me the time, and who is that shepherd that will stand before me? God says, no one can stand before me, and certainly Edom will not. <clears throat> Therefore hear the counsel of the Eternal, that he has taken against Edom, and his purposes, that he has purposed against the inhabitants of Teman, Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he will make their habitations desolate with them. The earth is moved at the noise of their fall, at the cry and the noise thereof was heard in the Red Sea. Behold, he shall come up and fly as the eagle and spread his wings over Basra, and at that day shall the heart of the mighty men of Edom be as the heart of a woman in her birth pangs. So even though they have aspired to be the eagles of the earth, God says that he will fly over them as an eagle and destroy them. Let's go furthermore to Ezekiel 25, another end-time prophecy concerning Esau and Edom, and remember that they are tied very closely with Jacob, twins. One supplanted the other, and there is hatred there that has been there ever since. <clears throat> All right, let's pick it up here in verse 12. Thus says the eternal God, Because that Edom has de dealt against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and is greatly offended and revenged himself upon them. So Esau, or Edom, 
has been closely associated with Judah and has created great offense and revenge or vengeance against Judah, that is, the true Jews. Thus says the eternal God, because Edom has dealt against the house of Judah by taking vengeance, and he has greatly offended and revenged himself upon them, therefore thus says the eternal God, I will also stretch out my hand upon Edom, and will cut off man and beast from it, and I will make it desolate from Teman, and they of Dedan shall fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. So there's going to be a lashback. Now it says the least of the flock will draw them out. Perhaps at some point the church will be very, very involved in this. And certainly the two witnesses and the church with it will have plagues to be poured out. And God will use them against Edom, the true Jews. The attitude of vengeance and wanting to destroy Jacob is not something that God is happy with. Anytime we have a murderous attitude, a hateful attitude, God is against it. Remember what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount? We cannot hate our brother. We have to love our enemies and do good to those which persecute us and despitefully use us. We'll see some things in the history of Israel yesterday that is very disquieting when you consider the teachings of Christ and what Israel's history has really been. Uh, let's go to 35 of Ezekiel. 35. And pick it up in verse 2. <clears throat> Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. Now, Mount Seir was in the land of Edom. So when it speaks of Teman, Ottoman, or of Seir, it's speaking of Edom or Esau. Prophesy against it. Say to it, Thus says the eternal God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you most desolate. Now Esau was sorry that he'd given up what he had. He had a bitter, vengeful attitude and hatred to the very marrow of his bones, and he couldn't seem to ever get over it. Well, God did not like that attitude. It's an attitude he cannot stand. I will lay your cities waste, verse 4, and you shall be desolate, and you shall know that I am the Eternal. And here's the reason. Because you have had a perpetual hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity, in the time that their iniquity had an end. Now, Jacob is about to have trouble. Bible speaks of the time of Jacob's trouble. And that trouble is about to come upon us, <clears throat> and we will have calamity. And Esau will crow about it. The attitude will be sarcastic, vengeful, laughter and derision, and hatred. And finally, we did it. We destroyed Jacob. That is the attitude the Edomites will have. That is their goal. That is their purpose, to kill Jacob. Esau did not manage to get it done physically during his day, but his descendants still have the same attitude toward Jacob. They hide it. They try not to let it show. They try to be friends with Jacob. How do you kill someone the easiest? Get close to them. 
pull the rug out from under them, and destroy them from within. That's the easiest way. If you tell them you're, they're your enemy and that you're going to kill them, it's much harder to get close enough to get the job done. But if you hide and you work on it subversively, you have a much better chance. Therefore, as I live, says the eternal God, I will prepare you to blood, and blood shall pursue you. Sith you, uh, sith you have not hated blood, even blood shall pursue you. Since you haven't hated blood and killing and murdering, it's going to pursue you. Think today on the world scene about people who have themselves been terrorists, who have themselves killed, and see if there are not a great number of people today who want to kill them. Thus will I make Mount Seir most desolate, and cut off from him it him that passes out and him that returns. And I will fill his mountains with his slain men, in your hills and in your valleys, and in all your rivers shall they fall that are slain with the sword. I will make you perpetual desolations, and your city shall not return, and you shall know that I am the eternal. Because you have said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it, whereas the eternal was there. Now what two nations did he hate? The two divisions of Israel. Those ten tribes we know as Israel, and those three tribes we've known as Judah. Those are the two nations that Esau has wanted to destroy. But God says, look, I was with, with Jacob, and you want to destroy it? You're fighting me. Therefore, as I live, says the eternal God, I will even do according to your anger and according to your envy, which you have used out of your hatred against them, and I will make myself known among them when I have judged you. So they are going to break the yoke of Jacob. They're going to have a great hand in destroying Jacob, our nation, and other nations of Israel. And then God will destroy them at the time when Israel is going to receive blessing. So just before the millennium, because Israel will not be blessed again until the millennium starts. That includes both houses, Israel and Judah. There are those today who think that the Jews were given the land of Israel as we know it, as a blessing from God that they were returned to their homeland. That is simply not true. And we shall see why. Let's go on and finish this. <clears throat> I will make myself known among them when I have judged you. Now God will not make himself known to Judah and Israel until the millennium, basically. Uh, except that he is a God of great power, and they will be humbled, but they won't really come to know him until later. And you shall know that I am the eternal, and that I have heard all your blasphemies which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, they are laid desolate, they are given us to consume. So the Edomites at the end are going to have an attitude toward Jacob that everything they have is mine. Esau has never given up the idea but he wants to get back what he lost to Jacob. Still in their hearts and minds to take it over. The nation of Israel over there is a very, very small beginning. 
That is not what they want. Jacob is not there. And their main hatred is against Jacob. Where is Jacob? Thus says the eternal God, when the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. When Christ begins to make himself known, comes back to rule, uh, Esau is going to find that his destruction of Israel comes down on his own head. And you did rejoice at the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so will I do to you. You shall be desolate, O Mount Seir, and all Idumea, even all of it, and they shall know that I am the eternal. All these end-time things are going to teach everybody who God is. We keep seeing that all through Ezekiel, and we haven't finished that yet. All right, let's quickly go to Isaiah 63. I'm laying some background here. Isaiah 63, so that we have firmly in mind what will happen to the Edomites. Isaiah 63, uh, Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Dyed what? Red. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, puts on a great show, dresses up, looks wealthy. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore are you red in your apparel, in your garments, like him that treads in the wine fat? Now see, this is a fulfillment, this prophecy of what Isaac had told Esau. You'll dwell in the fat places. Um, you look like you've been in the wine fat. I have trodden the wine press alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in my anger, and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation to me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in my anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. But here's one comes from Basra, claims to be righteous, claims to be good, claims to have been blessed. But is it so? Now, to Obadiah, I want to do a little review there as well. We've covered this story when we went through Obadiah and where these people are today and what they're going to do to Jacob. But since it's here and it is now upon us, I think it's good we look at this again and see who our enemies really are. Who is one of our greatest allies on the earth today as an American government? and nation, Israel. We'll do anything for Israel. Somebody sent me a clip on the email about Israel and how the Arabs have mistreated them and so on. It's a bunch of lying propaganda. Now, some of it is true. The Arabs have certainly misused and abused them. But they misused and abused first. This is only retribution for what those people who call themselves Jews have done to others. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the eternal God concerning Edom, we have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise you, and let us rise up against her in battle. So everybody's against what are called the Jews. Now let's discuss that just for a moment. Esau would go into hiding underground, there's a book written by a fellow named Kostler, 
which I read all oh, back in 96 or 7, called the 13th tribe, goes through and shows that the Khazars who lived north of the uh, north of Turkey, part of what became the Ottoman or T-Man Empire, lived in that area, and they converted to Judaism. Their king decided they should all be Jews. So the whole people who are descendants of Esau, the Khazars, converted to Judaism. Thereafter, they became known as Jews. They are of the branch of the Jews, as we know them, called the Ashkenazi Jews. The Sephardic Jews pretty much are true Jews, but the Ashkenazi Jews, of which there are many, are those descendants of those Khazars who converted to Judaism. So they are people who say physically that they are Jews and are not. And there are lots of them. The term Ashkenazi, or did I say that right? Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi. There were people who were Ashkenazi Jews who were very high in Hitler's government. Hitler knew the difference between the Ashkenazis and the true Jews. The name Rothschild means red shield or red child. The Rothschilds have been very, very dominant in European banking now for hundreds of years. They're very prominent in American banking. They are of the red badge or the red child Esau. They are Ashkenazi Jews. The Rothschilds have had one of their sons in America for generations now to oversee banking, to oversee the finances of this country. They are those who say they are Jews and are not. They have masqueraded as Jews. Bernard Baruch was one of them, who was the advisor to many presidents. We have people behind the scenes who are running the Federal Reserve, named that so that someone would think it was part of the federal government, and it is not. It is a private banking uh, company. And against the Constitution, in 1913, when the Federal Reserve was created, instead of making our own money, we allowed the Federal Reserve, a private banking concern, controlled by Rockefellers, Rothschilds, and that ilk, and every dollar that is printed today, or is created electronically, came from that bank. And we have to pay interest on it to that bank. Our own government, what we call a Federal Reserve note, is owned by that central bank, and we have to borrow it from them and pay interest to them on it. Our own leadership in this country is selling us out to private banking concerns with their roots in Europe. That's what this is all about. They are among the wealthy in the fat places of the earth, and they moved in and took over that land which we call Israel today. They fought a war of rebellion against the British, who were in control of that after... Uh, World War II, and through terrorism, they finally got the British to turn 
what we call Israel today, over to the Ashkenazi Jews. So that name, or that, that country they gave the name Israel, really should be today named Edom. Those are not Jews. They are Edomites. Megan, Ariel, Sharon, uh, Rabin, all of those were terrorists against the British. Now, we revere them in America today, and even in the church, many are turning to so-called Judaism. I remarked on that, I think, in the sermon on Obadiah, that there is that movement in the church. How does adding the name Jesus to the Talmud, Judaism, which is a pagan religion, suddenly turn it into something godly? Now, the true Jews themselves live by their own traditions. They don't follow the Bible, never have, weren't in Christ's day. He called them hypocrites, snakes, whitened walls, and sepulchers. Pretty grave, pun intended. They haven't gotten any better. They've gotten worse. The true Jews are going to suffer destruction, and God told them in Genesis 49 that they would be scattered among the nations. They would not have a homeland. Now, perhaps as a legality, because someday those people who are Edomites, descendants of Esau today, might have a complaint against God. Well, the birthright really was mine. It was stolen from me. Give it back. But they are not willing to repent and turn to God and obey God, submit to God and to His Son, the Christ, the Messiah, they are not willing to do that. They decided they wanted a homeland, and Edom especially decided it wanted a homeland. And it is not the Sephardic Jews, who may be true Jews, who are sprinkled through Israel today who are in charge. It is the Ashkenazi Jews who are in charge of Israel today and run its government. They wanted everything Jacob has today. They wrested control of Israel in the Middle East from the British and established a nation of Edom. That is only a beginning. What they really want is to see Jacob go down. That is why they have infiltrated the very highest levels of the United States government those who are in the offices of the presidency, the vice presidency, and so on, are merely puppets to those people who have control of the money. That's where the golden rule comes in. He who has the gold makes the rules. They not only have the real gold, but they have the fiat currency, which is quickly becoming worthless, which they are flating, inflating beyond control. Alan Greenspan and Bernanke are Ashkenazi Jews. And they hate you and me with a purple passion. And they want everything we've got. They want that birthright back. That's what they're working toward. They are the so-called illumined ones who are behind this whole thing.
They control the purse strings. We have other enemies. But who is it? We read the prophecies that have been hated and tried to be destroyed by so many different people. Those who call themselves Jews, whether they be real Jews, are also known as Jews. But they wormed their ways in, or wormed their way in. So people say, well, people hate Jews. Well, it's not the Jews so much in that sense that they hate. Well, Christ even said that they would be hated as well. But he also said the same thing about Edom. So when you lump the two together, and they all claim to be Jews, then it doesn't matter whether you're Ashkenazi or Sephardic, real Jew or fake Jew, you're still hated and killed and have to live by the sword and hide. And they've had to do that all the way around the world. Let's go to Joel 3. What time is it? I got I got a little time left. Uh, Joel 3. Pick up just a couple of more references here out of the Minor Prophets. Joel 3. Where are we in chapter 2? That won't work. Verse 19. Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness, for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. The Edomites have shed innocent blood in the land of Judah. And they know that they are also working on a conspiracy to destroy Jacob as well. So, if that is a land of Judah today in the Middle East, Edomites will be and are shedding innocent blood there, not just Arabic blood, but that of true Jews. Now, the Jews themselves were to be scattered among the nations, and there are far more of both kinds, true and fake, in America than there are in the land of Israel today, what we call Israel. Maybe it would help us keep this story straight if we just simply called it Edom, because that's what it is. Amos 1 beginning in verse 6. Thus says the Eternal, for three transgressions of Gaza, uh, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire on the walls of Gaza, which shall devour the palaces thereof. There's a place called Gaza right now that is right now in the news. And there's a great war going on over there over it which shall devour the palaces thereof. And I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him that holds the scepter from Ashkelon, the leadership. And I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Eternal. So in these burdens against various peoples, one of them is Edom. Uh, Amos 2, verse 1. Thus says the Eternal, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. So Jordan has turned the bones of Edom into lime. So there you have Arabs against what? People who call themselves Israelites, but are really Edomites. And Jordan is killing the descendants of Esau, thinking that they're Jews. Chapter 9, verse 12, 
of Amos. Well, verse 11, And that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, close up the breaches thereof. He's going to begin that with a righteous government in the church uh, before the millennium, and of course it will culminate in the millennium. And I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. God is going to begin to restore the true church in the end time, and it will eventually spread over the entire earth. That they may possess the remnant of Edom, and of all the heathen which are called by my name, says the Eternal, that does this. So he's going to bring Israel back into prominence, starting with spiritual Israel, and eventually all physical Israel, who will be an example to the rest of the world at that time. Let's go back now to the book of Hebrews, again to chapter 12. I think we can see in these end-time prophecies we've just gone through that not only was what Isaac said to Esau to come to pass, but it wasn't just to be a personal thing through Esau's life, but in all these end-time prophecies culminating in the return of Christ and the restoration of the true Israel, that Edom would be very involved. We need to understand that the governmental, prop the, the governmental policies, the laws, the financial control in this country is controlled by these Edomites. They are the ones who are trying to destroy Jacob through, ed through the educational system, our schools that are corrupt. They're trying to destroy it through destroying our currency and the value of our money. They're working at bringing in Gentiles by the millions, Chinese, Arabs, Mexicans coming across the border by the millions to help destroy Jacob. They're using many, many different methods to bring this country down. Currently, they are at war, threatening more war in the Middle East to destroy our military. Our military is quickly being destroyed. It's not even being kept up with the right equipment. Uh, our young men are, and women are being killed, and they are also being taken away from this country. So when they pull the plug and decide to bring it down, we won't have a military here to defend us. This has all been, doing, been being done with malice aforethought. You don't think Edom wants to destroy Jacob, consider what is happening around you every day. Those people are in control of our government, and we have little puppets on a string out front who are being manipulated. And they will break the yoke of Jacob. They will break the wealth of Jacob. And when Jacob suffers her calamity, which we will soon, they will laugh in utter derision and say, yes, finally, we did it. We destroyed Jacob, and we will take the land. That is their goal. That is their purpose. They live by the sword. They work their ways into the fat places. They are hiding, calling themselves Jews, and they are not. Calling themselves our friends, and they are not. But our Congress, our presidency, 
All of our governments support Israel no matter what they do. Because the people controlling our government are also controlling the Israeli government. So they walk hand in glove wherever they go. I think it will be interesting to see that that is only a foothold over there, but it is truly the real land of promise, America, Canada, Northwestern Europe, that is their goal and their purpose. Israel is only a shadow. It's a hidden thing, something they try to disguise. But their real attitude is going to be made bare here at the end. Is it any wonder when addressing newly converted Jews and Hebrews that this would come up? And is it any wonder that that would be preserved for us to read? Because we are the ones who will suffer the yoke being broken off Esau's neck. It will come down on you and me if God does not protect us from it. Now we will see that these people call themselves Jews physically and are not, and that that reference is also used in Revelation 3 to speak of those who say they are true spiritual Jews and are not in the church. That's another story probably for tomorrow, but I'll give you a little bit of a glimpse. So he said, don't have this attitude of taking anything lightly. We saw that uh, earlier in this book about how we are not to draw back we are to come boldly before God. We are not to despise what we have, but we are to hold on tightly to it and not let it get away. Other scriptures like letting not anyone else take your crown and so on come to mind as well. We are here to take hold on salvation and not turn it loose. Now our father Jacob did what? He had made some terrible mistakes. He had tried to play God if you will, just as Abraham and Sarah tried to play God, so did Jacob and his mother Rebekah try to play God. They tried to work things out that God had said would happen their own way. Made some terrible mistakes, which did not make God happy. And yet God despised Esau worse than Jacob because of the attitude of hatred and animosity, bitterness, and lack of value in godly things that Esau possessed and still does today. So when he says here, if you're chastened of the eternal, straighten up, make your path straight, don't go the way of Esau, don't let any attitude of bitterness enter in. It is so easy to do. And the way it is manifested the easiest is by despising human beings who are trying to follow God, and especially those who are put in positions to lead and guide us. If we take exception to them and we despise them, then we are starting to get an attitude of Esau. That will be covered in chapter 13. We're not there yet. But he's warning here to follow peace with all men, not just two or three or five or ten that you select that you want to hate. Follow peace with all men and holiness, 
without which no man shall see the eternal. Don't let any bitterness spring up in you. There are a lot of people who have allowed themselves to get bitter against Herbert Armstrong. A lot of people who are bitter against Ted Armstrong. A lot of people who are bitter against the ministry, period. That is an ungodly attitude. Unless there be any fornicator or profane person, Esau's attitude of vengeance and hate profaned him. It made him ungodly. That isn't God's way. Will we, for a selfish attitude that we want to hold against somebody, anybody, let our birthright go and someone else take our crown? There are only 144,000 crowns to be given out. If you give yours up, someone will take it because there will be 144,000 first fruits. God has called you. You have an opportunity to be one of those and to have that crown. And the only one that can take it away from you is you. That's why we have this severe warning that we not allow our birthright to be stolen from us. Now, we've seen it on a national level. We'll see it on a more personal level here, and that's what Paul is drawing it down to here in the book of Hebrews. But these great movements through history have a lesson for us today. It's easy to despise Esau, and yet God tells us in Scripture not to despise Esau because he is your brother. A truly Christian attitude will not allow racism and despite to come in. Now, I've showed you some pretty nasty scriptures about some Ashkenazi Jews who are parading themselves as Jews, but truly are Edomites. But we are not to despise them. Their problem is despising Jacob, us. Should we return the favor? No. I don't hate those people. don't want to hate those people. Now, I'll speak the truth about them, but we are not to despise them according to God's law. That is an attitude we should not have. Now, all over the Internet, you have articles about Zionism, and some of those people recognize that the Ashkenazi Jews are truly Edomites, and they despise them, and they're fighting a bitter battle of words against them. Now, we need to recognize the truth, but we should not despise them. We need to recognize that because of Jacob's part in the evil that was perpetrated upon Esau, we will be punished when Esau throws the yoke of Jacob off its neck because of our own sins as a nation, as a people. And we will suffer as a result. But we are not to despise them. Now, this has happened to the church as well. We had people who took over the church when Herbert Armstrong died who very, very likely are Edomites, Joseph Ducott Sr., Joseph Ducott Jr., and some of their ilk. 
We are not to despise them. They despise us, but our attitude is not to despise them. We recognize they're wrong, but we also need to recognize our wrong and fix that. We are not to be as they are. Just because they hate, we don't hate back, do we? I think most of us here, I don't hear much about it anymore. I think we've just kind of forgotten about them and moved on, basically. But we need to be very, very careful that we don't have a vendetta against or talk against them or other groups in the church for that matter, whatever organization there might be. It is not our job to run them down. It is not our job to despise them. It is our job to get close to God. That's what we need to be doing. Don't be full of hate or vengeance and lose your birthright spiritually in so doing. Verse 17, For you know how that afterward, (laughs) when Esau would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. For you are not come to the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor in the blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. Speaking of Sinai. So he's saying... We're not come to Moses. We're not come to Sinai. Esau rejected everything that came from God through Moses and the law that came down. We're not of that. Israel rejected everything that came from Moses and adopted a false religion called Judaism. It was false in Christ's day, it is false today. It hasn't gotten any better in time. It's gotten worse. How can people who were enlightened and have the truth of God and the Bible go back to the Talmud and the traditions of men plugging the name Christ into it and saying now we're Messianic Jews, but they still follow Jewish tradition and have very little to do with the Bible? In some cases, they even leave the Sabbath and make it worse than the so-called Jews and keep Sunday. They've just melded Protestant paganism with Judaic Protestantism and come up with a really strange child. That's what they've done. Verse 21, And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Well, where are we come? You are come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Our goal is not to have physical Jerusalem today. Our goal is the eternal spiritual Jerusalem to come out of heaven. Now, we may need to know where physical Jerusalem truly is in order to understand what God is doing. 
But that is not what we look to. To an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. We didn't come to Judaism. We're not here for Protestantism. We're here to the church of the firstborn. which are written in heaven, and the God, the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect. Like Hebrews 11 points out. Men who were not mature spiritually, but became that in time through the tough trials, difficulties, and things we read about in Hebrews 11. Wandering in deserts and caves, sawed in half, and so on. Made perfect through their suffering and to Emmanuel, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Christ's sacrifice instead of the animals that Abel sacrificed. Abel was a righteous man as far as it went in those days. But we, we haven't come to Abel's level. We have not come to Moses' level. We are come directly to God the Father and His Son, to the true Zion, the true Jerusalem, and the true church. See that you refuse not him that speaks. Don't refuse Christ. He's telling the Jews and the Edomites. The Jews have become antichrist. They were the first antichrist, if you will. They were against Christ and they killed him. That made them anti-Christ, against God. That has not changed. They've not accepted him to this day. So he's telling these newly converted Jews, true Jews, not to refuse Christ. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape. Who? The Jews of his day despised him and rejected him. They were the main ones to despise and reject him. The ones who made sure he was physically killed. Much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. They killed him here on the earth, the Jewish Antichrist. He went back to the heavens and is alive today to give us access to the Father and to lead us and guide us to salvation. So don't despise him whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. He's going to shake up the entire universe this time. One more time. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. We need to come to the point that we cannot be shaken. That we will not despise anything God is doing. That we will grasp and understand and highly value God's chastening so that we are not shaken. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That is not... Laodiceanism. That is not lackadaisical approach, a lackadaisical approach. Reverence and fear, because we are come 
to the God of heaven and earth. And we should know Him. And we should draw near Him and have reverence and fear that we might lose what we have been offered. Don't be like Esau. And in some way despise what God is offering you. Value it. Treasure it with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. He will consume everything that can be consumed. Let's not be consumable.